All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. They're coming to get you, Barbara. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Here's Johnny. Vanity. Definitely my favorite sin. I am devil, and I am here to do the devil's work. The power of Christ compels you! This is my boomstick! What's your favorite scary movie? What up, horror heads, and welcome to Shiver, a horror movie podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Daniel DeBona. And I'm David Uyoa. And this week, we have decided, well, this month in general, just kind of looking at spooky season here, We last year, we did a lot of, okay, this takes place in October. This takes place at Halloween specifically. And so we were trying to find another way to encompass the feel of Halloween. And we kind of kicked off last week with Pumpkinhead, not necessarily taking place in October, but definitely had the right mood for a Halloween movie. Mm-hmm. And so we started thinking, well, what encompasses Halloween and just this whole spooky season, as the internet loves to call it. And when it really comes down to it, it's about the stories. So, yes, there are plenty of movies that take place in October on Halloween specifically. But when we get into movies that are about stories, we start to get into something that horror does better than a lot of other genres. And that is, we are going to do a couple weeks of the horror anthology. Oh, yeah. And if you're going to do the horror anthology, we had to think of the perfect place to start. And I think we nailed it this week. We are going to be doing Creep Show from 1982. Uh, this movie has been around. I mean, it's 41 years old now. And we are going to kind of do this episode a little bit differently because just like how when we did Tales from the Hood, what we have here are five different movies, but without as much connective tissue as Tales from the Hood. So we're really looking at five short films kind of clustered up here. So we're going to try to do some things a little bit differently as we walk through this one. But but Dave, tell me your creep show story. How do you know this movie? What, what, what do you know about or You know, when did you come to it? So I was a big fan growing up as a kid of um, the Tales from the Crypt. Um, I think anyone who grew up in in the 90s was a fan of Tales from the Crypt. And um, as a fan of comic books, it was something that always um, kind of struck with me that it was uh, like you could tune in, you'd get a great story. And then next week you tuned in and you got another great story and they weren't necessarily connected. And sometimes uh, you knew the actors that were on there and sometimes you didn't. And it was always fun. Sometimes they were directed by Arnold Schwarzenegger. They were. And and, and I'll tell you this. I actually like that episode. I know it's that really episode gets, uh, gets some shit, but um, I, I think of it, you know, and uh to, to kind of go back to like its pulpy roots um, of, of what creep show really is. Um, I grew up watching the old twilight zone episodes where every episode was disconnected from the one that came before and the one that came after, but fuck, they were all great. Like I can't think of a single episode where I was like, no, nah, I didn't like that one. Right. I can like others more, but um, where I said, no, that was not good. I can't think of one. And so when I um, 
I hate to sound like a douche and say when I started my horror journey, you know, <laughs> uh, like nothing, nothing like that. But um, I was as a as a kid aware of George Romero pretty much exclusively through the dead movies. Right. And uh, and I think for a lot of people, they associate him with, uh, you know, Night of the Living Dead and and Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead. You know, and the movies are fantastic. And um, I, I, I've said this ad nauseum, that Day of the Dead is one of my favorite movies of all time. Like not just horror, just one of my favorite movies of all time. But I started going through this deep dive of all his movies because I, I found myself coming back to his stuff over and over again, but it was the same three movies. And I was like, well, there's gotta be more and fuck there was more. And this was the first one. I don't know. I must've been in college when I watched this one and something about it just resonated with me. And while I am a fan of film adaptations of Stephen King's books I can't say that I'm necessarily a Stephen King fan. I don't know if that makes any sense. That's fair. Um, I think that he can be a little long-winded. I think that he always takes it too far at some point <laughs> in the book. Uh, and, and I think that that's why the movie adaptations work so well, because you have a studio exec who's saying, well, let's pull this back a little bit. Yeah, maybe and we let's, let's have a child core. orgy. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and then, and then also it's like the, it is, like 800 pages long. Yeah, it's so long. You know? So it's it, it's it's really long and and the core of the story when like you really sublimate this thing down to its uh to its core, you can tell this in in half the number of pages. It's almost like reading Moby Dick. It's like great story, uh but I don't need to know all of this about a fucking harpoon. <laughs> you know? Keep the whaling shit in the whaling shit and tell me the story about the dude and the fucking whale. Right. And uh, and I say this as a literature guy, right? Um, but there's something about this collaboration between King and and Romero that really worked with me. And I think it has to do with the fact that it combined a couple of things that I was really into um, and still am into, which is that kind of like pulpy comic book origins from from the 50s, you know, the horror comics from the 50s. Right. And and the horror anthology film that becomes popular in the 60s um, with your your amicus pictures and your hammer horror and stuff like that. Yeah, it, to me, this is what would become Tales from the Crypt kind of comes from this. And uh, I love the second one. I don't care how big of a drop in in production value there is. I love the second one. Uh Tales from the Dark Side, which is the unofficial third in this series. Right. Love that one, too. Um, there's something about this format that I think just works for horror. Yeah, I think that that this this format, this anthology idea, you know, you mentioned Tales from the Crypt and mm -hmm. Twilight Zone, both huge for me. But predating even those for me, well, not Twilight Zone, did Twilight Zone a little bit as a kid, Night Gallery um, along the oh, same yeah. lines. But the one for me that is always the standout when it comes to thinking about my love for horror and anthology, it always goes back to Are You Afraid of the Dark, Ooh, which yeah. was Tales from the Crypt for kids. Mm -hmm. It was the exact same thing. It was somebody was cocky, bad stuff happens, maybe they learn a lesson, maybe it ends poorly. 
You know, it it, it it was the Tales from the Crypt formula. And so, you know, I did Twilight Zone when I was younger, didn't quite get it, but now I've gone back and watched them, just absolutely love them. Then it was that, then it, when it was when I was older and I started to have some friends that had HBO, I started to catch Tales from the Crypt here and there and fell in love with that. I ended up coming to this movie uh, about the same time when I was in college and I started to... Uh, I actually came at it from the other side. It was when I started to read Stephen King. Oh, and then okay. I started to get into his movies. And you start to have the whole thing where you're like, okay, well, this one's good. That one's not. You know, and you're going back and forth with it. And then I just kind of stumbled across this one. I was like, wait a minute, Romero, that's the guy from Night of the Living Dead, right? And you, you start to you start to look at these things. And so I, I ended up grabbing, and I was like, you, and first off, we, we always tell the story about the the blockbuster the image when you see this one, I mean, it just grabs your attention. Yeah, right. Like away. you, you want to know what's happening here. And so, I did the same thing. I was, I was early in college and uh, found this at a blockbuster, or torrented it or something, and ended up watching this. And I kind of had the same thing. Where I was like, man, this is, this is, this is just scary enough. It's just funny enough. It, it hits all the right points and it does it so rapid fire that you 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 just it just keeps coming and it's something new you know you're you're mm -hmm. watching and 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 there's there's a zombie dad and then there's and then there's plant stephen king and, and it just keeps <laughs> going and and just every time you're like whoa wait what then it's like all right time for the next chapter and and it just it just keeps rolling in a way that horror lends itself to because this is how kids do it. This is how storytellers would do it. It be, it's well, let me, you know, this is uh, this is how urban legends get developed. One person tells a story, then another person tells a story where they're trying to one up it or yeah, that was scary, but listen to this. This is creepy or this is even kind of funny. And you you're always not necessarily trying to outdo the person in front of you, but you're always trying to make sure that you're not any less memorable than the person in front of you. And I right. think that what creep show does really well is you never, it doesn't feel like it's ramping up, uh, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Tales from the hood kind of did an up and down until at the end, it yeah. was just straight up into the air, you know, mm -hmm. and amazing. This one is always just, okay. Yeah, no, 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 that was good. But here's a reason to remember mine. And they all have their own thing that gives you something that just stands out about that particular short. And so I really, I love this movie. I sat down to watch it Monday for the first time I've seen it um, in a couple of years. I think a couple of Halloweens ago, I went and rewatched this. So this is the first time I've seen it in a couple of years, but, but I just kind of sat down and, and it was the first time I've ever kind of come at it analytically or thought about rating it or anything like that. And, this movie just continues to hold up because everything that's here is decently ageless. It's story wise. Yes. The technology and some of the stuff that, that exists in some of these things is silly. Some of it was ridiculously futuristic for 82 and it feels the, the last one has some stuff that feels genuinely modern, which is odd. Right. But it, 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 it continues to stand up because it tells great stories it doesn't go too far. You were talking about that thing. Stephen King always goes too far. Yes, he mm -hmm. does. I am four books into the Dark Tower series. I don't remember how many there are. And it's, it is, it is a mythos. Like, I, I mean, there, there is, there is, 
a century's worth of mythos in the Dark Tower series. Without a doubt. It is constantly building on itself while also pulling from the real world. It gets so strange. The Dark Tower series is what actually happens when Stephen King just lets himself come unhinged. Like, we thought we'd seen it until right. then. And now it was like, somebody just keeps provoking this guy. Somebody keeps saying, you can do more. Um, but when you get these shorts that he's written, he knows, all right, I have got 22 minutes to tell a story and I need to tell it well. I need to do it with three, maybe four actors. And it's got to be compelling. And you've got to be able to remember it distinctly from the story that I told before it and the story that I told after it. And this idea of the horror anthology really encompasses a lot of what I look for in reading books to little kids. I need a good story that I can read that's not too wordy, that's going to be visual enough that that it's going to keep their attention. I want them to understand what's happening, but I don't want it to drag too long. So this thing just checks so many boxes for me. And so, you know, what we're about to do is we're about to kind of break down each short, but we're going to turn the podcast kind of upside down here. And Dave, before we get into breaking down each short, let's start at the top. And I want you to tell me, let's rate this thing just totally as a whole. Then we'll break down each one individually. But let's do it the opposite of how we normally do. How do you rate Creep Show out of a possible five 50s horror comics? Uh, listen, this is perfect. Um, you know, you mentioned that you saw this for the first time in many years. This is one that I watch multiple times a year. You know, two or three times a year, this will come on. Um, this was one of the very first horror movies that I showed my son uh, because for it being an R-rated George Romero horror movie written by Stephen King, it's surprisingly innocent. And, um, you know, the, the horror is very kooky. I think how, how I would, how I would classify it. It's, um, it's very classic. And uh, so it, I think subsequently it's something that can be rewatched uh, countless times. You know, for me, th- this is five horror comics. Yeah, I, dude, I completely agree. This is this movie is the standard in how mm-hmm. to tell an anthology story. And you know, you've got you've got movies like uh, Tales from the Hood where it, it it puts a different spin on it and it gets more gruesome and it and it gets kind of crazier, but this is this is the framework. This is the blueprint. This is how you do it. Yes, there were ones before it, but this is the one where everything that's come since Creep Show has followed this kind of formula of the different types of stories you have to tell, how you create these bottled up short films and you still tell a compelling story. So 100% this is five 50s horror comics. It's it's ridiculously rewatchable. Like you said, you watch it with your son. This is one I would recommend to anybody. Oh, you like old stuff. You like new stuff. But let me let me introduce you to some older stuff. You like Stephen King. You like zombies. You know, bugs creep you out. There's so many reasons. There's something for everyone. Give people to watch this movie that it starts to reach that kind of untouchable status as anything getting to where it is. So yeah, this is 100% 50s, uh, five 50s horror comics. Uh, 
you you mentioned something that kind of struck a chord with me like there is a before creep show and an after creep show when it comes to anthology movies yeah um you know the, the bc and ac that's yeah that's it, you know uh, there is horror BC and there's horror AC. Yeah. Uh, and, and as we as we we talk about it, you mentioned story a lot. Um, and, and that's really what this is, is just a group of stories. But they're really they're very simple, but they're really good. So we're going to start with the very first one. Father's Day. Right. Um, what's going on with Father's Day for you? Now, I, I don't need a summary. I don't need any of that stuff. I just need you to tell me like. What does this do for you? I love Father's Day because it has, this is the one that has that Southern Gothic feel. It's all yeah. about the family drama that's involved with this murder. And that idea of no, well, hell yeah, she did it. We know she did it. Everybody knows she did it. And she comes and remembers that she did it every year on Father's Day. That, that, that feeling of that, that, rich prideful family who something awful happened and one of them did it but they benefited from it so haha now we have a ham dinner every year to talk it's about it's a flannery it. o'connor short story man i mean yes. it's, it, you you nailed it it's southern gothic it's it's so great in that aspect and what's what's amazing is i view father's day as probably the weakest of the five um but hmm. it, it's still really really good I have nothing against it. One thing that is hilarious to me about Father's Day is I went and looked it up. Ed Harris was 32 when he when when this movie was was made. When when he was in this, he was 32. 32 used to look a lot different than 32 does now. Like when yeah, I well, was, <laughs> he, he he looks like he could be 52 in that. Right, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, like when when I, I it started. Like every it started, and I was like, God, man, I was like, I've never actually gone and looked up how old Ed Harris was in this because, yeah, dude looks easily 40. And in 82, if he was 40, like that's wild. No, he was 32 in 1982. Yeah. And so, but he puts on an amazing performance, just fucking killing it in his tucked in like plaid shirt and his big yeah. belt buckle and his it's ability to 80s. light a match on anything. Like, dude is just constantly <laughs> lighting matches on different stuff. Just knocks it out of the park. But this was this one was an exercise in telling a family drama in the guise of a horror movie. And mm -hmm. I loved that aspect of it. I um man, you know what? I, I don't know that I would call this one of the weaker ones for me. Um, I would probably rank it in the top two. I don't know okay. that I could pick a favorite one, but I put this right up there with the crate for me. Mm -hmm. um, and there's there's something about this, and I I think it's I think it's the family drama aspect of this, but also it's the fact that it had been a couple of years since we had gotten a Romero zombie, and right. all of a sudden, from it, it, we had never seen it actually pop out from like. A, a grave before and here we have a romero zombie coming out of a grave you know right. like to, to me that was that was awesome the tombstone coming over and smashing on ed harris's face who like yeah he's he's looking a little worse for where he might have been you know uh working in a mine or something like that for you know the first part of his life but um he can still get it 
<laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. You know, that, that's a tight little bread basket he's got yeah. in, in them Levi's, uh, you know, 501s or whatever he's wearing. <laughs> um, I, um, I love the final reveal at the end when, right. when he comes in and he says, you know, where's my cake? And he's got the, the fucking head with all the accoutrement of the cake and he's just like where's my cake it's like fuck it It, to me this is the right amount of silly right for for this because otherwise like this is like drive you insane horror yeah sort of stuff you know like this is the kind of stuff that nightmares is made of but uh but because i think king and Romero really understand what it is that made those old EC comics so popular. They are able to turn this like really horrific scene into something that leaves you like whooping and yelling and like, you know, fuck yeah, give him his fucking cake. You know, <laughs> yeah. like it's it, it, this to me sets the tone for this movie so well because if you start with a different segment, this is a very different. I think the only other segment that maybe could fill this spot is the crate, but I wouldn't want to move it from where it is. I, I really do think that this is the right way to start it off because there's there's enough humor um, that you understand that this is not going to be a straightforward horror movie. There's enough drama here that you realize that this is going to be about people. It's going to be about characters. Right. And um, the special effects are so good that you know that you're getting a George Romero movie. You know that he called up Tom Savini. He's like, hey, buddy, I need you again. Right. And and that, you know, we're, we're not getting a, a shit. What was that movie? Um, like, a, there's always vanilla. <laughs> you know, you know, you're not going to get, you know, there's always vanilla. You know, you're not going to get Season of the Witch, where it's just, you know, a couple of characters sitting around talking and Romero's trying to figure out um, who he is as a filmmaker. Like, this is Romero, I think, firing on all cylinders. You know, I, I think from, from the time that he makes Martin his vampire movie in like 1974 or whatever it is, to the time that he makes Day of the Dead in 1985 like he doesn't fucking miss and i right. think that this is him at like the peak of his powers well and what's really cool about father's day is something where yes these are stephen king stories but there's an element there there's a romero feel to this one when you you go back and you look at all of the the social commentary that his movies mm-hmm. are always packed with and there there is that element to father's day as well where it's also this whole story about how like you said at the end you're like rooting for this guy because fuck them like fuck these rich entitled assholes yeah. who just think yeah the dude was a dickhead but seems like you guys aren't great but so either. are you yeah <laughs> and so but you you get this you get this idea of telling a story of these people who think they're rich, powerful and untouchable getting their comeuppance. And that's, that's the type of social commentary and through line that you find a lot in those Romero movies. So immediately this thing comes out of the gate punching. And like you said, it's got a little bit of everything. You've got that King feel with the way that stuff is building you, the, the tension and all of that. You've got the Romero special effects. You've got the Romero social commentary. And this thing sets the table perfectly. I think you're absolutely right in the fact that you can't you can't open this movie with a better one because this perfectly lays out exactly what you're in for, which is mm-hmm. some King, 
some Romero, some gore, some humor. Like we're bringing it all every time. And it just, it really does open the film wonderfully. Some great performances. Just the old dude who just all he does is bang his cane and scream at his <laughs> daughter about cake and shit like that. Dude was creepy. Yeah. I also love how vi this very early on introduces that idea of showing you certain shots like in cutouts. Mm -hmm. And you start to get those right away. You get the weird colors. This, this thing introduces everything they're going to do for the entire film at the beginning. And I love that. And, and it manages to be, I think, one of the best comic book movies without actually being an adaptation of a comic book. Right. To, to me, I don't think we got a better representation of comics in movies until Sin City. Which That's is fair. many years after this, you know. Yeah. Um, Since you know, it was what, what, like tw twenty years after this. Yeah. You know, twenty-five years after this. You know, and, and and I think that when you think about what King and Romero were trying to accomplish with this movie, which is we want to take the comics that we loved as a kid and the movies that we love to make, and we want to just combine these things together. I mean, that's exactly what they did. Peanut butter and my chocolate. Mm -mm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so we set the table with father's day and then we decide now for something completely different we get the one-man show that is the lonesome death of jody verrill so tell me take me through take me through this one what do you think about the lonesome death of jody verrill so i do think that this is the weakest one here and and i think that they're tends to be a consensus that this is the weakest one here. King is not an actor. Um, <laughs> no. But, I mean, we, we've heard this from countless people who make movies, that the reason why they direct or write or do whatever is because they wouldn't get acting jobs. And so they wrote themselves into a movie. I'm pretty sure Tarantino has admitted that's the reason his entire career exists. Yes. Yes. <laughs> the only reason why he acts is because he writes well enough that he can basically say, and I'm going to be in it. Right. <laughs> and you have to let him do it. You know, uh, I mean, that's, that's why Rocky is Rocky because yeah. Stallone was like, nah, I'm going to act in it. And they were like, okay, <laughs> cool. Uh, no, and he was like, oh, you're not getting rocky. And so I think that I don't dislike this segment at all. I think it's really funny. I think that um, it maybe might do better as a third segment. Right. But then again, I don't know which one I would move around. <laughs> You know, so we're, we're back at this place where it's like, OK, what's the most perfect version of the movie that you can get? Um, I, I think it's just it's um, it's weird. It's definitely, I think, the weirdest one out of yes. all of them, um, but weird in a good way. Um, and I, you know, I sometimes stop and think, like, you know, who who would I have casted in this role? And I don't know. I don't know who in 1982 I would have casted in this role. Right. And and I think that that's kind of what it boils down to is like maybe Gene Wilder, you know, maybe may, may, maybe Gene Wilder. But I, he, he, I don't think he would have done this movie, you know, um, I, I I don't know. I don't know how to make this better. It's It's kind of like how I feel about the Batman. It's three right. hours long. It's too long, except what do you cut out? 
Right. Nothing. So then is it too long? It's too long. So what do you cut out? Nothing. So, and then that's yeah. kind of where I am with this, where it's like, I, I don't think it's perfect. So what do you change? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, this is, this is the one where th this, the, the lonesome death of Jody Verrill is where I, this is the one where I become contrarian because on the surface, this one is, is, is the weakest. And I, I would never argue against somebody saying that because I, I get it. There's something about this one that I just love. There's, I, I love Stephen King's performance and yes, no, he's, he's not a great actor, but maybe that's, you know, like, but you know, maybe, maybe that's what was needed here because mm -hmm. he's just playing, you know, like a country simpleton, you know, he, right. he, he, and he, and he pulled that off and the voices, it's so stupid. It's so stupid, but, but it's just stupid enough. And I think that that's why it works. Exactly. It is, it is stupid, but it's not too stupid. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's, it's the exact voice that was needed for this character. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing is, is told with no narration, no exposition. And, you know, so often you, you, when we think about movies where one person carries it, you always think about, okay, well, what device did they use to talk to the audience? And in Castaway, you got Wilson in I am legends. You got him doing the, what the, the webcam diaries and stuff like that. They didn't even attempt that. He occasionally talks to himself, but it's in such a Looney Tunes, goofy <laughs> ass, like nonsense way, like down to the fact that he has those visions of taking it to the Department of Meteor Studies <laughs> and getting paid. This thing feels straight out of Looney Tunes yeah. for the entire thing. And if and if that's all it had been, then I would hand in hand arms across America be like, yes, this is the weakest segment. But then in the final eight and a half seconds, Stephen King says, wait a second, I'm that dude. And he has the guy put a shotgun in his mouth and blow his own fucking head off. And if that's not the Stephen Kingist ending yeah. to this thing possible, it was in that moment where you go, oh, oh, shit. But it's still funny because he looks like a goddamn Muppet when he does yeah. it. <laughs> and, it's, and it's that that moment of him sitting there looking like a living ghillie suit and then putting a shotgun in his mouth and blasting and just like that floppy plant head just kind yeah. of deflating. It's so funny while being so shocking and not at all gory. They don't do the big burst of like, blood or chlorophyll out of the back yeah. or anything he literally just like deflates his head and you just watch this guy who 24 hours ago was so excited to maybe get 500 dollars, you know right. and and now he's he's at, at 24 hours later he's ready to kill himself and you go oh that's right stephen king wrote this like that's you you're talking about gene wilder like before that before that moment Mel Brooks could have written the lonesome death of Jody Verrill. And I'd have been like, yeah, that's a Mel Brooks movie. No doubt in my mind that it would have been Mel Brooks. And then that final moment, you just go, oh yeah. 
Stephen King wrote this and that's hilarious and tragic. And I'm going to hell because I'm laughing so hard at everything that just happened, including him shooting himself. And there's something about that moment for me that sets it above Father's Day. And so, and like I said, and I have no problems with Father's Day, but that is why I end up kind of putting this one not as the weakest because that moment is just, oh, and then you laugh. And then, yeah. and then it, and then it just freeze frames and you're like, okay, on to the next thing. And you're, you're, you're just left reeling with the fact that the, the, the happiest moment in this guy's life 24 hours later was him committing suicide. <laughs> and it's like, it's so bizarre because it's, but at the same time, it's not like we watch some like depressing ass cycle of insanity that he went into where he decided he had to kill himself. We watched this guy literally trying to make lemonade out of lemons for like 16 minutes. Like he, he, he wasn't going to get down on himself, you know, well, Jody, we got to do something about this now, you know? So now the vision is maybe he can only get 200 or whatever. And he's, he's, he's so bright side of life about everything and just hanging on to the, fact that this is going to be what changes his life and it is and it's for the worse and it just it cracks me up i love the 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 makeup and the special effects in this one while not that while is not good gory and crazy and zombie the whole house growing up with this weird alien grass that's just suddenly sprouting out of everything that he's touched or looked at uh, and when it starts, when there's that moment where it's just growing out of his mouth and he's just sitting there watching TV and he's just kind of staring all of that stuff. Whereas the, the Father's Day zombie is like, yeah, he fucking came out of the grave and he's goopy and he's got the jawbone. And it's like, yes, this one is the subtlety of Savini and Romero mm -hmm. that also makes them genius because it doesn't always have to be one-upping what you did the time before it can be just showing how fucking good you are at your craft by making something like grass seem creepy and horrifying you know while you were talking i couldn't help but think that had he not blown his brains out he would have ended up looking like a green gossamer from <laughs> looney tunes yeah and then i was thinking maybe that's how gossamer became gossamer and that to do the thing like the sheepdog who like pulls it over to the side to see um and i will say this in defense of the lonesome death of Jordy verrill is it gave us one of and i can't choose which one is i think the better one but one of the two best quotes in the whole movie which is meteor shit <laughs> There's something about his delivery of meteor shit that just makes me fucking lose it. And and there's and there, there's a, there's an element to the performance that he gives there that again is it just it's so it so perfectly encompasses that pulp feel. You know, and and I'm pretty sure that we've talked about this if not on the podcast then definitely off air. But it's when you watch The Phantom with Billy Zane, right? I like, I, I do, too. I fucking do, too. And it's for that exact reason. For, <laughs> for as much as everybody's like, oh, it's so bad. It's like, yeah, but like, 
then you don't understand it. Yeah, then you then you don't get what they were yeah. after. <laughs> you know, like then you then you don't get that that's what they were trying to do. And so his performance just kind of perfectly pulls off very similarly what we got from the Phantom, you know, the pulpy comic that that became that movie. It it's about overacting. Yeah. And it's and it's about pulling up these things that make people go, "Ooh, that was bad, but it felt right." You know those those types of things. There's a there's a, a, a an Alice Cooper song that I cannot remember the name of right now, where he's he's like essentially the, the lyrics of the song are him directing a bad horror movie, and at one and there's like a part where he says and overact now and then like the <laughs> and then like the solo hits and it's like shit like that's it like he gets it you 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 there is a way to do a good bad movie a good bad performance and that's what stephen king brought to us you know i think i may have been too critical i think you may have won me over here because if it had been eg marshall in that role <laughs> i think all of a sudden this becomes in my mind one of one of the better one of the better segments here so i i i think i owe stephen king an apology not that he cares. <laughs> not, not yeah. Not that he cares. Not even the slightest. I, it, you know, what, what's what's he busy doing now? Trying to fight uh, Elon Musk about paying for blue checks. I don't fucking know anymore. Like Steve, <laughs> Stephen King has all the fuck you money he ever needs. <laughs> that that he'll ever need like ten times over. Right. Um. Yeah. I mean, is he the most prolific writer of all time? I think uh, he is. I know that he is the most adapted author, at least in the horror genre, possibly ever, uh, uh, to a book to film. Right. So uh, he may be. Take that, Bill Shakespeare. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And speaking of Shakespearean, that brings us to the the third segment, something to tide you over. Um, This segment, in in my opinion is is the one that i think people overlook the most because even if they do it to uh to come down on it people do talk about the lonesome death of jordy verrill um obviously people talk about father's day they talk about the crate and creeping up on you is like this iconic ending right this is the one that i think kind of sits in this weird place where it's just it's right in the middle. Yes. What do you think about this one? What's interesting about something to tide you over is the fact that this is the one that has huge name actors in it, especially for 82. Right. I mean, you got Ted dancing in this thing. You got Leslie Nielsen. So you, you're coming off of the goofy ass performance of the lonesome death of Jody Burrow. You're coming off just the, the cold brash comedy of father's day and what is actually a miraculously funny ending. So then this next one starts and you see Ted Danson and you see Leslie Nielsen and you're sitting there waiting to laugh the entire time. Yeah. And it never fucking happens. This is it's dark. It's so dark and it's so, so creepy. I I love this one. Uh, one of the funniest things just that happened. So I'm watching this with a friend of mine, and she and she goes, "Wait a minute, who is that?" And I go, "It's Ted Danson from Cheers." And she goes, "Wait, the guy from Cheers is the guy from The Good Place?" And I was like, "Yeah." 
She never put that together? She did not. She had not connected those dots until she looked at him there and saw good place. And I said, cheers. And then she went, oh my God. <laughs> um, and so, but anyway, so you're, you're waiting. I'm, uh, I am a just, uh, th- not that this is a hot take. I'm an unrepentant Leslie Nielsen fanatic. He's a guy. I, without I pray a doubt. at the altar of Leslie. Yes. Nielsen. Like Leslie Nielsen and Steve Martin are, I think the two funniest guys that, that the, that the world has ever known. Yeah. And so to see him in this role where he's not only dark and creepy, he's just fucking evil. Like there's just, there, there is nothing redeeming about Leslie Nielsen's character here. He is he is presented as a a vengeful guy who takes vengeance in a horrible way and gets pleasure from it. And you just get this really just dread-filled movie. You get this story where you're just this this thing is uh you know, this thing is Poe-esque. Like it is, it is very Poe. The way that this is a story of revenge and reveling in that revenge and making sure that you don't just get it, but that the person that you're getting the revenge on suffers the most they can possibly suffer. And it's just this one, I think, is the one that because it sits right at the crest of the wave there where you're you're kind of building up and you're going. And then this is the one where you just kind of go, whoa, that was dark. Like, I don't you know, you, you start to talk about this movie and you're, you're looking for funny things and you're talking about that performance and you're talking about, you know, th- these special effects. This thing is special effects light. It is it is just great storytelling and two great actors putting on an amazing show. Um, dude, I, I think you hit the nail on the head here. Um, oddly enough, because I grew up watching old movies from, from the fifties with my grandfather, I'd seen a number of Leslie Nielsen's uh, dramatic movies and so my association with Leslie Nielsen is not straight comedy. It's not just um, airplane and naked gun. It's not just airplane and naked gun <laughs> or I know it's not as nearly as popular Dracula dead and loving it. Oh my God. Um, uh, mafia. Oh my God. <laughs> mafia. I fucking love mafia, man. God, it's so, he's so fucking good. <laughs> Um, you know, and, and Lloyd Bridges is another one of those guys that I think you have to yep. throw out there. Like, yep. and, uh, actually, um, I probably shouldn't have, but I put airplane on for length the other day and he fucking loved it. And he was like, is that Leslie Nielsen? Cause he knows him from, uh, Dracula dead and loving it. And he knows him from uh, naked gun, but I hadn't shown him airplane yet. <laughs> and, and in a lot of ways, naked gun is much more tame right. than, than airplane. And he, and he was like, is that Leslie Nielsen? And I go, yeah, man. Like, this is the movie that made Leslie Nielsen. <laughs> and all of a sudden, he was in. He was in. Um, I don't think he quite understood the drinking problem joke. He was like, why? He's like, of course he has a problem. Look at how he's drinking the thing. I'm like, that's the joke, kid. That's, like, that's, yeah. These like, are the let, jokes, let, kid. 
Um, he was like, this movie's so stupid. I love it. Um, you ever been to a Turkish prison? <laughs> you ever been to a gymnasium? Um, <laughs> uh, well, then I sold him on Ultra Magnus, Robert Stack. Being yeah. He was like, oh, fucking Transformers. Okay. Um, he actually said it that way. I think I need to, you know, curtail some of this stuff with him. Um <laughs> So reel it in a little bit. Yeah, just just uh just a hair. So um dude, there is something about the way that he acts in this where I think um I don't think it's totally devoid of humor. I think that there is a very dark, dark humor here, particularly at the end when yeah. he's like so like you know whistling as he you know sets up the shower and all that like the way he just goes about his business it is a little funny but it's also i think the most unsettling in the right in 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 this segment because he's he's so dark before then that i kind of like i expected that darkness to continue and then when it doesn't he just turns it off like that yeah and and he just goes back to being Leslie Nielsen. It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> that is insanity. That's insanity. And the way that he laughs at the end there, like Leslie Nielsen has depth. And if you've never seen any of his 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 straight dramatic work, you really have to. Um, there's scenes he he wasn't the the final uh person cast in the role, but there's uh there's footage of him in Ben Hur. Um, right. He was supposed to play the character of Masala. And, really? Yeah. And um, he's fantastic. He is really, really great. I don't know why he didn't get the job, uh, but he's also in one of, I think, it, it, there's a little crossover with sci-fi and horror. One of the most, I think, iconic sci-fi movies of all time, Forbidden Planet. I've um, actually never seen it. He, play, he plays the captain, and okay. there's a lot of what William Shatner is doing in Star Trek as Captain Kirk comes from what Leslie Nielsen did in Forbidden Planet. Okay. Uh, he just, he doesn't overact the way that Shatner does, but it's really good. And he, he gets that sort of like urgency that you expect someone in, in a, in a high tense situation to, uh, to, to to have there and and you see it in him in this movie so it was kind of, it's always nice to go back to this and to see him do something other than the funny guy because even when he does mr funny man there's a seriousness there's an intensity to what he's doing right there's there's something about his brand of humor that i think just hits differently than say I don't know, like a Nathan Lane or someone like that, you know, or a Matthew Broderick. And these are these are really funny dudes. Like they make me laugh consistently. Right. I, I just see Nathan Lane and I start to laugh. But there's something about Nielsen. I don't know what it is, but he just he he gets it. And he also manages to crawl under your skin in this one. He really does, man. Just that that you're talking about the scenes where he's just like whistling when he's just driving his Jeep out, like pulling the, yeah. the cables so he can hook up the TV and everything. And and he's just just like, yeah, go ahead and scream, whatever. I own the whole island. And but then and 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 it's and the, you're right, there's like a dark humor to that. But then 
there's that moment where he's where he's kind of crouched down right there next to him and he says you know maybe if you can hold your breath long enough you know and and maybe the water can work with you and and he and he goes as far as to give him a sense of hope yeah. that maybe he's going to be able to get up out of this and and he he lays out a game plan for him for this is how you've got to do it and he 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 tells him, you know, maybe you can, maybe you can't. What do I know? And then he just drives <laughs> off. He's like, oh, let me get a drink and watch all my tiny TVs hidden behind a painting because it's 1982, and this is what <laughs> this is what rich people in futuristic houses look right. like with buttons hidden that move painting. It was very Scarface. Mm. Yes, there we go. Yeah, it okay. absolutely was. And so the, it's it's and I and I do think that this one just kind of it almost gets lost like in the miasma of just this whole movie as something that while it's very good, there's nothing remarkably stand out about it because even when you do finally get what are awesome, like monster zombie monster yeah. things at the end with their face, like it, the, the opposite of, of the father's day when their, their faces are all bloated from being stuck underwater and, and they, you know, and they're just drooping and you see the one take the bullet in the head and just, just none of that matters. Keep going. Yeah. Right. And so it's like, by the time you get to that, this whole thing has just been so dark and so weighing, then you get that laugh and you just, and you're like, what the hell just happened with this one? And I think that it just kind of gets, it just gets stirred up in all of this. And then you move forward into what I, I can, you know, I safely say, and I'm pretty sure is the consensus is the best of yeah. the five. And that's the crate. The simplest premise of any of them, perhaps, which is just found a box under the stairs. What do we do now? <laughs> Tell me about the crate, dude, uh, the crate. I, I said at the top of the show that there's two that I go back and forth on which one is my favorite father's day or the crate. The crate is, <sighs> there's something about the crate that I think for me, aside from the fact that it's just like spectacular, um, you probably understand this too. Um, faculty parties yes all right um there's always that faculty member that you think is really fucking cool you fucking love being around this person but then at like the christmas party or something like that the spouse comes and you're like the fuck oh that's right that's why we don't hang out that's why we don't hang out <laughs> and and that's what's going on in this movie and i think that amongst all of the amazing actors that are here because um like fritz weaver is fucking awesome in this he's absolutely fantastic in this um holbrook uh hal holbrook as as henry northrup is mm -hmm. awesome in this but this movie or this segment Adrian Barbeau yes. just fucking knocks it out of the park, which is what she does every time she's on screen. And I'll say that every time she's on screen. I have seen Swamp Thing. Fuck you. Swamp <laughs> Thing is fantastic for what it is. All exactly. right. And, and she never disappoints. Adrian Barbeau, I have always been in love with her. I continue to be in love with her. And even as the 
absolute worst, there's something in me where I was like, nah, I'd hit it. <laughs> <laughs> but man, the, the, the whole concept of this and um, like, I don't know how old the school you work at is. Uh, it's, um, the, the oldest part of it was built in the fifties. All right. So, so that it's about the same as my school. Cause my, my school was uh, built in the fifties also. Um, like there's things that you just find and you're like, All what, the, what the fuck is this? Like you yes. open a closet and it's like, whoa, I just opened up fucking like the doorway to Narnia here. What yes. the fuck is this? And, and like, you're afraid to tell someone cause no one knows this exists. No one has known since since the last graduating class in 1976, right? And you're just like, what the fuck are we doing here, right? right. And and there's there's something really special about working at a school, right? Be it a university, a high school, uh, elementary school, middle school, it doesn't matter. Working at a school with people whose jobs are to be educators, there's a sense that you're supposed to be competent and you're supposed to be good at your job. And when you see these two absolute buffoons is what they are because they're book smart, but they might as well be Abbott and fucking Costello. Right. right. When you see Holbrook and Weaver do their thing, for me, it's there's a magic there that happens because it is an Abbott and Costello bit. It's it, that could have been an Abbott and Costello, Costello meet Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. and I would have believed it. And and it, it's it's funny. Um, without being overly humorous and it's gory without being overly horrific. It's it strikes, I think, the most perfect balance out of all of them. And I mentioned earlier that there's only one other quote that I think gives meteor shit a run for its money. And it's tell it to call you Billy, bitch, is <laughs> just fucking every time I hear it, I have to say it with him. Yes. Yeah, uh, Hal Holbrook is is so fucking good in this segment. I, those moments where he's just where he where he's imagining killing uh, Billy, and like the the one the the one where he pulls out just the fucking dirty Harry and shoots her right between the eyes, and then just envisions everybody clapping for him. Yeah, <laughs> like that that shit just cracks me up. It's it's so good. It's so funny, and you just. You're seeing this guy who's obviously, you know, like he's he's working at a university somewhere. He's he seems to be respected in his field. And you're mm -hmm. just watching Adrian Barbeau just walk around and make a complete ass of herself and him just. <laughs> yes, dear. Mm -hmm. You know, like he like what else is he going to do? Right. Because she right. puts up with him or whatever, you know, for whatever reason, he's still with the chick from Escape from New York. He <laughs> he's. <laughs> he's He's, you know, he's stuck there and you start getting these uh, uh, like nine to five moments where he's like envisioning, you know, killing her and stuff like that. And, and those are so funny. And just everything that happens here, you get the great creature work when you finally see the weird like Yeti thing. And what and an amazing creature. It's a, it's a really good reminds me of something from Critters. Yeah, but bigger, you know, but and so it's it's this really great creature that gets an amazing introduction with just the eyes and just the one beam of light across them. Right. Just just some amazing directorial decisions and how they do the thing. They make you wait before they show it. We get this real mini 
well put together creature feature here that you're right then also would go toe to toe with with Abbott and Costello uh, meet the mummy right it, it, mm-hmm. it it's it fits it checks all those boxes this is i i mean this is probably the bloodiest one because you've got the streaks yep. of blood and, and and things like that that this is the one and you're right it's it's gory but it's gory in the way that you would expect comics from the 50s to be. It's gory mm-hmm. in the way that, you know, yeah, you can watch this with, like, I would, if my 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 12-year-old daughter, if she really, if she wanted to see something like, this would be the one where I'd be like, okay, this one's a little scary, but I think you're going to be all right. And, and I think that she would even be able to laugh about this one while still just kind it's just enough gore to freak her out, but not enough that she's going to ask me to turn it off. Right. This one does so many things, right? Like the, the thing about, and, and, and it's a good thing it does because I'm pretty sure it's the longest one. Uh, Sounds about right. And so you just, everything about this one is, is so good. And I, one of the things about this one for me that now watching it after getting older and, you know, going back and watching older horror movies now and appreciating them. This is the first time I have watched creep show since I've watched the original, the fog, which I believe came out in 79 or 80. And that was how Holbrook and Adrian and, and, and Adrian Barbo together. And their dynamic was completely different in the fog. And so if you can, if you, if you have, if you're, you know, lucky enough to, to watch those two and know their dynamic for both of those, it really shows the range of these two people. Cause they're completely different characters and a very different couple in the fog. And so yeah. to see them together like this, you know, it's one of those things where when you know about that, you go, that had to be intentional right there the, because like i said it, it was two or three years before this came out so yeah the fog you, comes out in 80 you know yeah. so uh you know this and he was working on this for like a year right you know um uh, romero always worked on stuff over long periods of time because funding was difficult right and um this very well could have been made immediately after the fog right and so their their dynamic is great and then you've got that totally different one with uh with with the two professors and then you just got the 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 goofy janitor who suddenly just shoves his arm in there because he says oh maybe it's emeralds you know like that thing that goes from a really funny moment to a really scary one this one does it all on Mm -hmm. the simplest premise and I didn't even think about that idea of like being in the school and yeah, just opening a closet. You know, m- my school is in a weird area. It's it's a very transient area. So one year we'll have every classroom has got a teacher in it because we've just got a ton of kids. Then all of a sudden a bunch move and we lose some personnel units. And every once in a while there will be that classroom that just stays empty or gets made into a conference room or something. And everybody just starts shoving all the extra stuff from their room in closets. And then there will be that teacher who it's their first year. They just hired fresh out of college. They're like, all right, you're in room 12. Nobody's been there for five years. And they're just 
like opening these closets to sitcom style situations of stuff pouring <laughs> out on top of them, you know, books that haven't been best practice or anything. Anybody's taught since the seventies <laughs> just come flying out because if there's anything the teachers do, it's keep stuff. They yeah, don't throw hoarders. shit away. No, yeah, yeah. Teachers don't throw. Like, like I said, I have found curriculum from the eighties while moving classrooms before. And been, like, yeah. you know, like the, like the family guy joke where it's like, can we get a social studies book that doesn't refer to the civil rights movement as trouble a coming? You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. No lie. When I, when I started at my school, um, I was handed a textbook by the department chair. And I said, uh, I said, oh, okay, great. Which stories from this are you doing? He says, oh, no, this is old. I said, yeah. why are you giving this to me? He was like, I don't need it. <laughs> yeah, I, because, because I can't, because I'm physically incapable of throwing it away. And yeah. You don't have a lot of stuff. So here. <laughs> right. It's so weird to hear you talk about um, like having free rooms like that. Like we, we have the opposite problem where like we are constantly trying to build more classrooms um, because we have teachers that literally don't have a classroom. So they'll float from one classroom to another, moving to classrooms where teachers are on their planning period. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. And like you'll do this for years before you get your own classroom because they literally have to wait for a teacher to retire before they can get you a classroom. See, and that's, we that's it, wild. It, it is wild. We've built um, we built a new building last year two years ago and um we still have teachers with without classrooms dang yeah see like yeah. i have i have been in this school for for uh one or two years where every classroom had a teacher in it or something going on and then like i said we'll we'll have a year where we don't get a ton of kindergartners so now we've got less kindergarten mm -hmm. classrooms and maybe one of them ends up opening but yeah like right now in my school i can off the top of my head i one classroom that's that's just, like I said, a conference room now. I can think of one down our fifth grade hall that's just storage. We've got one that used to be our computer lab, but now we're one-to-one -one with, like, handheld devices, so we don't have mm -hmm. a computer lab anymore. So, like, the PTO took it over and just has, like, a headquarters yeah. in a classroom <laughs> down there. So, that's, the like, it's – and like I said, you know, next year we may have this huge influx. Suddenly, there mm -hmm. everybody may move out there. Let's think about working in a uh, – I'm in a mining town, man. Like, the the, the work comes and goes, and the, the, the yeah. folks aren't always permanent. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess it, it, it is a little different for us because we're, we're, we're so consistent. Like we know exactly how many students we have space for, um, you know, and as a, as a private school, we can, you know, accept or, or, or not accept, right. you know, the, the number of students, you know, they'll, they'll get waitlisted or whatever. Um, I got my classroom after two years of being there and I only got it after two years as opposed to maybe three or four, because I literally begged. I went into I went into the dean's office and I said, I'll take a broom closet. And they happened to have a room that had been an office that was expanded into a classroom that was being used for testing. So for guys that had like extended time for testing. Right. Um, they would throw them in there with a with a proctor. That way, you know, the, the regular testing time guys didn't have to uh, didn't have to wait for them. And um, 
slowly but surely that kind of went away and they found other places for extended testing guys. And so the room was just sitting there and I, and they were like, Hey, do you want it? I literally have one full wall because the other walls are basically windows. There's windows <laughs> that face a major street. Right. Um, now we're on the third floor, right? And then two of the other walls are windows that look into the library. <laughs> so it's it's a classroom inside of the library. Like you have to go into the library to get into my room. Um, like uh, back to school night, like parent teacher night is always like crazy. No one knows where they're going. Um, so it's it's absolutely and no one wants this room. They call it the fishbowl. I have a sign. <laughs> That says "Welcome to the Fishbowl." <laughs> that I printed out it says "Don't tap on the glass; it disturbs the fish." Um, That's great. So, like this, this is um, it, it's it's so weird to 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 hear you say that because yeah. it's like so radically different. Um, but the thing with schools is that they're all the same. Yeah, true enough. They're all the same. True enough. Yeah. Um, and and this leaves us with the the very last segment and uh the last segment they're creeping up on you i think is the go out with a bang episode uh of of this series here um there's um i mean they pull no punches here um you've got some uh one big name actor here eg marshall which um is a very familiar face that a lot of people know. You know him from 12 Angry Men. You know him from Superman 2. Uh, but also, you know him from... Um, shit, what's this movie I'm thinking of? Um, oh, the comedy from the 80s. Um, uh, Christmas uh, Vacation. There you go. Christmas yes. Vacation. Yeah, Christmas Vacation. He plays... Um, he plays one of the dads, not Clark's dad, mm -hmm. um, uh, Beverly D'Angelo's dad. Yes. And, you know, it's, this is a face that everyone knows. You know, he was huge in the 60s and 70s. By the time the 80s comes around, yeah, he's working a little less, but this is a big name actor. And he's playing what is, I think, like the most, like, just fucking out there guy in all of this. Like, even Jordy Verrill, I think, is not as wacko as he is. Um, how does this one work for you? So back when we used to do rush for, there would always come the conversation of favorite versus best. Mm -hmm. I will admit that objectively the crate is better than they're creeping up on you. However, they're creeping up on you is my favorite. This is the one that I'm always so glad is the knockout punch at the end. The, this is this is the grand finale. This this is the going home for this movie. And I love it. Whereas in Father's Day, I said there are those notes of the Romero social commentary. This one might as well have not had Stephen King attached at <laughs> all. Because this one is Romero social commentary done in the creepiest way 
possible. So you've got E.G. Marshall playing this guy who's rich and powerful, doesn't give a fuck about anybody he steps on, kills, that gets in his way so that he can stay rich and powerful. But he's playing this, you know, weird, like um, Howard Hughes type guy, yeah. right? Where he's he's obsessed with germs and and he, he pays all this money for a penthouse because it's supposed to be germ free. But a roach keeps showing up and he can't get rid of that roach. And so all we're getting is him trying to kill a roach while constantly on the phone with people talking about how unrepentant he is about the fact that this guy killed himself because he took his business and he pays all this money. And how can there be a blackout? And doesn't anybody respect him and all of this? And then what ends up beating him is the numbers. He ends up losing to cockroaches. There is, there's a, a rise against song called the numbers they have the power we have the numbers it this is the movie that is the social commentary that is they are powerful we are many and so you get this idea that if you actually band together then you can defeat the evils in the world even if you are to them just a cockroach and you get this guy who ends up being beaten by what he views as the most disgusting and lowly life form that exists because they all hit him at one time. This is the movie, this movie, this, this segment, like this fires up the anarchist in me, right? This is the movie that makes me want to light a Molotov and throw it in a state <laughs> capital, right? Yeah. Like this is, this is, this movie is riot fuel and I love it. It's so good, but it's also presented in a way that's so perfectly horror and creepy. Swarm movies are a style of horror that is not explored as often anymore as it was in, in the, the 80s, 50s. in the yeah. 50s, the 70s. Like, like they, they, they come and go in waves, but you know, there used to be movies just called Ants. Yeah. There were literally people stuck in a hotel that was swarmed by trillions of ants and trying to survive. You know, the, this is a throwback to the uh, and, and throwback for 82, but now watching it still throws back to mm -hmm. those movies that we we don't get that that swarm movie anymore. And and just getting beaten by something that one of them is terrifying to you let alone getting, you know, just completely covered in them. And then you get that amazing iconic shot that ends this thing where the rest of the apartment is empty and they're all just piled on top of him in this panic room that he had that was supposed, you know, the whole thing was supposed to be germ free and a clean room. But then you realize he's got this panic room that's supposed to be like, uber safe and uber clean and they still get to him and you just got this body covered up in this swarm this pulsing swarm of cockroaches and it's so gross and it's so creepy but it's also just so ridiculously powerful in the message that it brings this one just ah like this one th this this one gets me going like like when i real when i actually started listening to the lyrics of rage against the machine like that's <laughs> that's how i feel when yeah. i watch they're creeping up on you uh look i'm not going to add anything to that because you uh took the words right out of my mouth um so what i will do is i'll ask you 
as a as a southern boy are roaches a problem for you um so they're not as bad here as like uh my family that's in fort walton they might like they get those big like wood ones my dad calls Mm -hmm. them like palmetto bugs but they get those big wood ones outside um i really they're not a huge issue here as far as the big ones like you see in this movie um but you know just like anywhere if you if you do get infested with those little ones the ones that you know like show up on hoarders and stuff mm-hmm. like that then they're impossible to get rid of but they're not as big a thing here in alabama where i am in in tuscaloosa as they are like i said even at my parents place in fort walton so here in miami it's insane right um yeah and, and i'm sure it has to do with how like damp and moist it is all the time i mean it, it's this is a swamp yeah. um you know that 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 we drained because we respect the earth though so much um there was an apartment that um my wife and i lived in when we first got married and uh the thing with apartments is that when you fumigate they leave the apartment but they go to someone else's apartment <laughs> right and when they fumigate they leave their apartment and they go back to yours so we had we got married very young we didn't make very much money um we still managed to live in a decent part of town so it's not like we were living in the dumps or anything but roaches were a problem in this place and i remember in the summertime particularly here in miami it gets really bad um because as much as they're you know cold-blooded and they they like you know the the heat um, it gets too hot for them outside. So they, they come indoors. I remember one night I was asleep in bed and I get this strange sensation and I, I start scratching. I'm like, what the fuck is that? And I scratch. And as soon as I pull my hand out, I've got a roach in my hand because I had just pulled it off of myself it had been how it got up onto the bed i had no idea and so here's the thing when a roach gets near you or on you you have a natural reaction when a roach gets near or on i'm gonna say 100 percent of the women that i have known (laughs) and i'm not saying that this is 100 percent of the women in the world Right. Just 100% of the women that I have seen react to roaches. So I'm talking about women in my family and uh, women I work with. The uh, the knee-jerk reaction is incredible. Yes. I'm pretty sure it can be marked by satellites in space. <laughs> so if I were to react and wake up my wife who's sleeping next to me, she's not going back to sleep. Right. Possibly ever. Ever. Which means I'm not going back to sleep. So I can't make any sudden movements. I can't I can't really react. And even asleep, I know this. (laughs) So I just fling the roach and with some ninja. I don't know how the fuck I did this, dude. I had a pair of uh, black work boots that I wore almost every single day. I left them right by the bed. I took the boot, I threw it at the roach, I squashed the roach. Yes. And I said, 
I got to get up before her <laughs> so that I can clean that shit up. Because if she finds out it happened, fuck it. Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you wake me up? You let me continue to sleep here. So, <laughs> so I went back to sleep, right? Because you need to sleep. And so I woke up early the next day. I cleaned up the evidence and I told her later after we moved out of the apartment. Um, and that's not even the worst roach story in that apartment. Oh, oh no. There so is like something about roaches that um, I, th I guess it's because they're so dirty. Right. You don't know where they were before because they're innocent. They do nothing to you. Right. Absolutely nothing to you. But you look at them and you're disgusted by it. Yeah. Yeah. No, like I, I, um, I, I, with roaches, I'm like, okay, if I see it, I can go kill it. I'm good. Like, uh, my my best friend Lewis, uh, we always we always have the running joke that that like if 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 at some point in the future just everything goes to hell and it just ends up being the two of us, he'll take care of the spiders and I'll take care of the roaches because I don't I don't do spiders. But roaches, yeah, they gross me out, and I don't want to like you know go on Fear Factor and eat a bunch or lay in a bathtub full of them. But like I can see one and be like, oh okay, and like go step on it and be good. But Lewis can not like he is the guy where it's like he walks into a room if he sees one he's not going back in that room not until he is 100 sure that room is roach free like i've got to like i've got to like kill it and like mount its head on a toothpick and bring it out and present it to him <laughs> like okay look it's okay to come inside now. <laughs> um so interesting um in universal studios orlando they used to have a fear factor um little thing i don't know what to call it attraction i guess right um twice i was picked both times i had to do the um the eating challenge and one time was like bull testicles or something sure yeah okay and the other time was blended roaches roach milkshake who <laughs> uh testicle was chewy but fine the roach milkshake did not make it through. Oh, God. Mm. Okay. Well, yeah. they're creeping up on you. <laughs> so there you have it. I mean, we, we rated this thing up at the top. We, we told you right away. We knew when we picked this one. Occasionally, this happens. We pick one knowing that we're going to go into it and we're going to give it a five. We try to avoid those, which is why occasionally somebody be like, hey, have you done this one? Have you done that one? And it's like, no, because we kind of know. And, mm -hmm. you know, but this is one we we've been talking about creep show since I started this show. Yeah. Uh, since I started doing it, creep show has come up and come up. I'm glad that we finally got a chance to do this one. It's a resounding five. This movie's perfect and it's good for everybody. Mm -hmm. So there you have it. Uh, thank you guys for tuning in, for listening this entire time. Everybody who's hung around. Don't forget, if you are listening to this, we are going to be live in Orlando at Spooky Empire. We'd love to meet you. Come get a hug, a sticker. Give us a sound bite. We're looking to, uh, we're looking to revamp some things here on the show with our opening. You might be featured as part of our opening theme now if you've got something good to say. Come find us. We've been looking at the schedule. The Spooky Empire thing, man, it just keeps growing. Like the, yeah. the film festival is amazing shorts. They're doing burlesque. They're doing, there's a rock show, American Party Machine. I went and looked them up. They just make like cock rock that's like perfect nice. for parties. Um, there's, there's a 
there's a goth dance party. There's a Rocky Horror Shadow Cast. This thing keeps stacking up. So if you're in the Orlando area and you listen to this show enough that you like horror movies enough that you listen to this show, check out Spooky Empire. Shoot us a message on Instagram. Let us know if you are going to be there. We'd love to meet you because you can head to shiverpod.com and get links to all of our social media outlets. We are on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. All of those places at ShiverPod. Absolutely. So on behalf of all of us here at Shiver, fright you very much.